For the sermon today, I'd like to ask you several questions to begin with. Does it matter what you believe as long as you believe in God? Does it matter what you believe as long as you believe in God? Another question, can you regard yourself as a Christian as long as you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for your sins, and that you're trying to be a good person? Can you regard yourself as a Christian if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe he died for your sins, and that you're trying to be a good person? You know, some people will go to Acts chapter 8, verse 37, where Philip was talking to the eunuch. And the eunuch says, well, you know, what keeps me from being baptized? And Philip's comment was, if you believe with all your heart, you can. And then his response was, the eunuch's response was, well, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And many people take that, that that's all we need to do. And some people have been told, you know, if you want to repent, just reach out and touch your radio. And, uh, you know, we'll connect with you. And uh, that's all you need to do. Now, the question is, God pleased when we select a day such as Sunday or days such as Christmas and Easter to worship Jesus because we want to show him we love him? Is that pleasing to God? I realize I'm preaching to the choir here, to people who know the answers. But, you know, millions of people wonder about these things. They may turn to Romans chapter 14. Let's just do that quickly. Because these are texts that people use without fully understanding what's there, but they believe they understand what is there. Romans chapter 14. Is it all right just to select one day out of a week as long as you're comfortable with that and make that your day of worship? This is one of the scriptures that is often used. And to start reading about verse 5, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. As long as it's okay with you, as long as, as you feel it's all right. He who believes or observes the day observes it to the Lord. So is that what it's talking about? Does that justify just taking any day out of the week? You know, you've got to read through the whole chapter, and it's talking about eating or not eating on a certain day, selecting a day to fast on. It's not talking about a worship day. But these are some scriptures that are used. Are these biblical teachings that we've been talking about? Do these, step, these statements that we just mentioned, do they represent truth or do they represent something else? Deception. Now, I heard a preacher recently or some time ago pick up the Bible and he said, this is God's word. This is God's inspired holy word. But I don't understand everything that's in here and you can't either. He said, uh, you know, you can't prove everything that's in here. You have to take it on blind, believing faith. 
Is that true? What about 1 Thessalonians 5.21 where Paul said, Prove all things, examine everything, look into it, hang on to what's true. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things that you don't see. It's based on faith, it's based on evidence, not blind faith. I was reading a book recently where the writer described Christianity as a big tent with a number of denominations that preach different things. But they're all Christian because they're all part of this big tent. Again, my question is, is that true? Is that what the scripture says? In Matthew 16, 18, what did Jesus say? He said, I will build my church, not churches. I will build my church in the gates of hell. The grave will not prevail against it. Why do we have so many different ideas about Christianity? Why do we have so many ideas about Christian teaching? Why do so many people today feel well, everybody can be right and nobody needs to be wrong? You know, I was just thinking about that. If I was a math teacher, how would that work? You give a set of problems, two plus two. And some people give you an answer of four. Some people say, well, five. Because well, I just feel that's a better answer. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't work that way except in theology, except in religion, that everything can be right and nobody's wrong. Why do we think that way? I was thinking about another example coming in in the car. For those of you that have studied chemistry, one little zero can make a big deal. You can breathe carbon dioxide, which is CO2, or you could breathe carbon monoxide, which is CO. One will kill you. And the other one you might not feel real good. <laughs> but see, little things make a big difference sometimes. Now, a math teacher could not function, and you wouldn't pass the course if you gave whatever answer you felt was right, whatever was right for you. Why do we think the way we do today? Well, you know, you're okay, and I'm okay, and we're all okay, and nobody's right, wrong, everybody can be right. Why do we think that way? You know, we live in what is called a relativistic age. Everything is relative. Everything is relative. Whatever works for you is okay. Have you ever talked with somebody, get into a kind of a, a very stimulating discussion? They think one way, you think another way. How do you end the conversation? Whatever. <laughs> whatever. You know, whatever you think is okay. Whatever I think is okay. Whatever. Yeah, this is what it's all about. We, we live in a relativistic age. And this idea that there's no such thing as truth is something that has pervaded our society today. Well, how do you know what the truth is? Well, that's what you think the truth is. But that's where this, this idea of relativism comes in. Every, everything is relative. You know, as a book came out back probably in the 60s, I think, and I think the name of the book was I'm Okay and You're Okay. 
Everybody's okay. <laughs> That's okay, okay? <laughs> now, but this is the age in which we live. Nobody's, you know, right. Nobody's wrong. And if you're sure you're right, then you've got to be wrong. <laughs> and if you have very strong convictions, then you know, you're a bigot. You're, you're, you're biased. You're narrow-minded. But this is the world in which we live. It's kind of interesting when you think about it. This is kind of a dominant idea in our society today, that everything is relative. And yet you've got a lot of people today searching for answers. What is the answer? You know, what is the right answer? What is the truth? When I was in Kenya a couple of years ago, <clears throat> we had, I think I've mentioned this before, but we had a large number of people in the congregation I didn't recognize. And somebody said, well, they're from another church just down the road. And I talked with several people afterwards, and they said, you know, one of the reasons we're here is we, we're beginning to recognize that our minister is not teaching us what's in the Bible. Our minister is not teaching us what's in the Bible. We see things that are there, and he doesn't say anything about it. I was talking to someone fairly recently, and I don't remember even where this was, but they said they were learning about the church, learning about the truth, and they asked their minister of another church to come by and talk with them. And he came by, and he started, you know, this individual started asking the minister questions. They actually had an assistant with them. And he couldn't answer the questions. And he finally said to his assistant, you know, I think we have another appointment this afternoon. And they left because they couldn't answer the questions that were being asked. <clears throat> this is why people get turned off today sometimes about religion because the answers are not there. What happens when you die? Well, we go to heaven, we think. There are a lot of core doctrines today that many people realize something's happened. If they get into church history, they realize this was changed, this was changed, this was changed. Now, Mr. Ames referred to the book last week about pagan Christianity. <clears throat> it's written by these individuals. One of the individuals spent a lot of time, he said, a number of years looking into various religious practices. And he concluded pretty much that they've come out of paganism. And he's pretty blunt about that. I think what's interesting is he spent all this time looking at practices, how churches are built and the songs that are sung and various things like that. He didn't look or touch or talk about doctrines, about the Sabbath, about Sunday, about Christmas, about Easter, about a bunch of things. He's talking about practices came out of paganism. But he doesn't touch on the idea of doctrines, what churches teach, and what has happened to those teachings over the years. But it's a, it's a very interesting book from that perspective, but it also leaves a big hole because he doesn't talk about doctrines. What I'd like to do in the sermon today is address the subject or a subject entitled Truth or Deception. Truth or Deception. And if you're looking for a, t a subtitle, it could be truth or consequences. <laughs> because there will be consequences if we wind up being deceived or buying into ideas that are just not true. 
the sermon, I'd like to discuss what the Bible says about truth and error, and it says quite a bit. I want to compare what the Bible reveals about certain core doctrines, and we don't have time to go through everything that Mr. Ames goes through in his course. Uh, if you want to do that, you can take his course on biblical doctrines. But we do need to review from time to time what the Bible says and, what, and compare that with what many people believe today. Because as these people mentioned in Kenya, they said, we're reading the Bible and we find things there that our ministry is just not talking about and not telling us about. You know, I can remember growing up in a number of different Protestant churches, never heard about the kingdom of God. I thought it was this warm, fuzzy feeling that you get in your heart. But whenever I learned what the truth was about the coming kingdom of God, that Christ is going to return, set up a government on this earth, and that we can reign with Jesus Christ on this earth and have an opportunity of bringing peace to this earth, turning the world right side up, I was excited. I mean, it was really exciting to learn that, that I'd never heard before until I came in contact with the church of God. <clears throat> but I want to look at some of these things today in the sermon. I want to challenge you too. Do you know what you believe and why you believe it and where those beliefs came from? Did they come from the scriptures or did they come from somewhere else? The ideas of men down through history, did they come out of paganism? Where did your beliefs come from? And does it matter what you believe? Does it really matter? I think we'll see that it does. Now we could ask another question. Why do we spend time discussing truth and deception in a sermon on the Sabbath? Why don't we talk about Jesus? Why don't we just talk about God or that God loves us? You know, the reason that Jesus died for us is because God loves us. Think about that. John 3.16, a very well-known scripture, for God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ died because God loves us. But Jesus Christ also gave us a whole series of warnings in the scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament, so that we would not be deceived. You know, if you're dealing with family members or your children, would you deceive them? Or would you tell them, be careful about this, be careful about that? You know, as little kids begin to walk, even before that, I remember when our boys were little, uh, <clears throat> you know, I taught them, and my wife taught them, don't touch the stove. It's hot. Ouch. Burn. You know, we have to teach these lessons to our children. God loves us. So he says, watch out for this. Watch out for that. You know, don't play in the street. Don't do this. Don't do that. Be careful climbing up in a tree. Don't go out on limbs that are too, you know, too narrow, too thin. Because they'll break. God loves us, so he's given us a whole series of warnings in the scripture. Now, we talk about Jesus Christ. We talk about his death. We talk about his resurrection. We talk about his message. 
But as we will see here for just a minute, the Bible is filled with a lot of warnings that we need to talk about that are also very encouraging. Let's look at a couple of things. Start in Matthew. We'll just move through here very quickly. What I want to illustrate is it runs from the beginning to the end of the New Testament, and we'll talk about even scriptures in the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 7, part of the Sermon on the Mount, the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Verse 15 of Matthew chapter 7, he says, Beware of false prophets. So at the very beginning of his ministry, he's warning. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. They're nice people. They may claim to use the name of Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. But inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. We'll talk about how to recognize these individuals and these teachings in just a little bit. But the point I want to make is at the very beginning of Christ's ministry, he's saying, beware, be careful, be alert, think, think. Matthew 24, and again, let's look at one other scripture here quick. In Matthew 13, there's a whole series of parables. In verse 10, the disciples ask Jesus, why do you speak in parables? When I was coming into the church 40-some years ago, I was a graduate student at medical center, and I was talking about religion, I guess, a lot because I was coming into the church and learning a lot of things. And we had an older faculty member, uh, Dr. So-and-so, we'll call him. And uh, he was religious. And uh, he was asking me one day about some of the things I was learning. And I'd been reading the Bible that morning, and I I did something I probably shouldn't have done. I said, Dr. So-and-so, why did Jesus speak in parables? He said, well, to make the meaning much more clear. I said, really? And then I had to repent because I had baited him. (laughs) (laughs) And I shouldn't have done that. But I was learning. I was learning to use the truth. I was learning to appreciate it at least. But Jesus was asked by his disciples, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered and said, now this is what the Bible says. Because it has been given to you his disciples, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. And then he quotes from the book of Isaiah, prophecy saying that uh, you know people are going to hear, but they're not going to understand. They're not going to understand. Verse 16, Jesus said, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. You have been given the capacity to understand the truth. You might want to jot in your margin there, John 6.44 and John 6.65, where Jesus said, Unless a person is called, unless their mind is opened by God, they're not going to understand the truth. Now, they may understand it intellectually, but it's not going to be here. See, God has got to perform a miracle in your mind, to kind of reach in there, turn the dial so that things become clear. I remember at the feast one year, this lady had been coming with her husband for a number of years, and we got into a little habit of taking he and his wife out for dinner at the feast. And this one feast, she started to smile, and she said, you know, I think I finally am getting it. 
I think I'm finally getting it. It's beginning to make sense. And she was excited. She was excited because it was things were beginning to fit together. But Jesus said, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For surely I say to you, many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and didn't see it. You know, Daniel was given prophecies. And Daniel was told, seal up the book, Daniel. <laughs> the understanding of that will come later. It's not for you. It's for a time in the future. I was talking with Mr. King several weeks ago, and he said, Doug, isn't, is it, isn't it really exciting to actually part of God's work at this point in time when things are beginning to happen that we've been watching for 40 or 50 years? I hope we feel that way, that it is exciting. It's an incredible privilege to be called. It doesn't make us any better than anybody else. It's really pretty humbling. It's really pretty humbling. And God says not many wise, not many mighty are chosen. And we look around the room and we have to agree with that. <laughs> it's just us. Again, God is going to call and give the, you know, everyone else on earth a chance but there's a time frame. There are a group of people called first fruits. And we never want to take that for granted. That's a privilege. That's an opportunity. Okay, back to our subject here. Matthew 24. <clears throat> what was Christ talking about at the end of his ministry? Matthew 24. <clears throat> his disciples say, what's going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered and said, verse 4, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I'm a Christ, I am, the, I am the Christ, or I am a Christian, or I'm a minister of God, and will deceive many. This was what Christ was preaching about. The beginning of his ministry, at the end of his ministry, as Mr. Armstrong used to say, God repeats things in the Bible that are important. And we need to ask the question, who is Jesus talking about? Is it our little group of maybe 7,000 people that are being deceived? The Bible says Satan has deceived the whole world. We don't come anywhere near being the whole world. But you've got two billion people that claim to be Christians. You've got another what, billion people that uh, claim to be Muslims. This begins to fit the scriptures. Especially when you read about some of the doctrines and some of the things we'll cover today. He said... <clears throat> Take heed that no one deceives you. Now, this is repeated three times down through this chapter. Verse 11, it says, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Down in verse um, <clears throat> 24, For false Christs and false prophets or false teachers will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And we've got to be careful if God has called us. You know, we can be deceived too. I mean, we've seen this happen in recent years. People that were sitting here, in some cases even preaching here, have gone off in one direction or another. See, we're not immune. None of us are immune. Matthew 15, verse 14. 
Jesus mentions here about religious leaders of his day. Now, these people believed in God. They were Pharisees, Sadducees. They believed in God. They worshipped in the temple. But in Matthew 15, <clears throat> verse 14, the disciples were asking, uh, Didn't, don't you realize you offended the Pharisees by what you said? Down in verse 14, Jesus said, Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. They're blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall in a ditch. Isaiah talks about a future time whenever people would be blinded. They wouldn't understand the truth. So these are some of the warnings that are there. Another very sobering scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. <clears throat> And as we read these things, I think we need to ask, well, who are these people? How would you recognize these people? Why does a loving God talk about subjects like this? Second Corinthians chapter 11. <clears throat> and Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. Corinth was kind of like a New York or San Diego or Los Angeles of the uh, ancient world. A lot of traffic through there, people, a lot of ideas, uh, sophisticated people. Paul writes to these people in verse 3, he says, But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, what would another Jesus look like? One with long hair probably. Whom we have not preached, or if you re receive a different spirit, what would a different spirit be like? Watch Sunday morning television. Religious television. Where people are dancing around, waving their arms, doing all kinds of things, falling into the aisles. It's not a spirit of God. Now, the spirit of God is under the control of the people of God. It's not something that takes you over and you start babbling and doing other things. I've been in some of those places, seen some of those things. Some of you have too. It's a very different spirit. But we've got to be able to recognize these things. Or a different gospel. We'll talk about that just in a minute. What's a different gospel sound like? Now, these are scriptures inspired by a God who loves his children. We need to understand that. That's why these things are there. These are not a put down on anybody. It's to watch out so that you're not deceived. You're not let off in the wrong direction. Paul mentions in uh, verse 12, <clears throat> he says, But what I do, I will also continue to do. In other words, I need to preach very strongly that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are as ministers of God. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Who's he talking about? The people that ordain themselves, people that decide they want to become a minister, people that open up their own websites, start their own churches. Put some things in here. But no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers... Who are Satan's ministers? See, we need to think about these things. These admonitions are there for us. 
Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. You know, most of these people don't view themselves as Satan's ministers. I think many of these people believe they're very sincere. They don't understand what they don't understand. We don't need to go through a lot of other scriptures, but I just wanted to illustrate there is scripture after scripture after scripture that warns about being deceived. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, read the whole chapter. It talks about a falling away. It says a man of sin will be revealed. He'll do some miracles and people will be deceived because they didn't love the truth. They didn't love the truth. They didn't value it. Well, we're just one of many. We don't want to be special. We don't want to be part of the first, first, first fruits. Yeah, think about it. In Titus chapter 1, it talks about holding fast to the word and being able to convict people that are deceiving other people. Let's go to 2 Peter just for just a minute. 2 Peter chapter 2, and I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter. Think about it. Understand that this was inspired by a God who loves his people, who loves his children. You know, when you raise children, you tell them, don't do this, don't do that, do this over here. Because you love them. You don't want them to make mistakes. That's why these things are here. Second Peter chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, it says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers. There's going to be false teachers among you who will secretly or subtly bring in destructive heresies. Well, we don't have an agenda. We're just learning new things, which many of you heard. We're not changing doctrines. We're just making administrative changes in church policy. Very subtle things that turn out to be very big things who will bring secretly or subtly bring in uh, destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many, not a few, it's that many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. They will malign the truth. Oh, that's crazy stuff. That's weird. You believe that? Where did you get that? You could ask the question in reverse. Where did you get that? By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Nobody wants to be deceived. Nobody wants to be taken advantage of. But these are the warnings and the instructions that God has given us. Second Peter 3, very quickly. Peter concludes this book, and he'd just been talking in chapter 2 about beware of false prophets. But he mentions in verse 16, talking about Paul's writings, he says, uh, as also in all of his epistles, speaking of them, of these things, in which some things are hard to understand. Book of Galatians, for example. One of the more technical books in the New Testament. People take things out of that. Well, this means this, this means that. It doesn't mean that at all. 
But Paul's writings, where they're difficult to understand, are twisted, which those who are untaught and unstable, who don't really understand the big picture, will twist to their own destructions as they do the rest of the scriptures, as we'll see in just a minute. Therefore, beloved, since you know these things beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and Savior. These are the warnings that God provides. Let's look at one other. In 1 John, which I thought was interesting, the way John phrases this. <clears throat> in 1 John chapter 4, and John is writing towards the end of the New Testament period. These Gnostic ideas were permeating the church at that time. Uh, and they were some of the people that believed that Jesus Christ didn't really come in the flesh. He wasn't God in the flesh. And Paul addresses, excuse me, John addresses that a number of times. But notice John's advice. Chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Don't believe everything that you hear. Don't be taken in. But test the spirits. Examine. Think about what you're hearing whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Notice verse 6, though, which I thought was interesting. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There is a spirit of truth that leads and guides people to truth, and there is a spirit of error that leads people off in a wrong direction if they don't discern where those spirits are coming from, which is what John is saying there in verse 1. Don't believe every spirit or every person is being led by a spirit. They may claim to be led of God, but you've got to test and try and make determinations. Revelation chapter 2, what we have to do today is not unique. The early church, people attending the early church, had to do the same thing that we are having to do today. Notice in chapter 2, it says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus, and this is talking about the era of the church, the apostolic era of the church. And we might think, well, everything was fine there. The apostles were there. So everything must have been okay. Okay? No. <laughs> These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, I know your works, the writings of the apostles, the miracles that they accomplished, and that you cannot bear those who cannot, <clears throat> excuse me, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. You've examined what people were saying who claimed to be apostles and you found they were not. Why? Because they were liars. They were not telling the truth. They were not preaching the truth. The early church had to make determinations who's preaching the truth and who is not. Again, John is writing towards the end of the New Testament period. There were Gnostic people promoting all kinds of weird ideas. 
mixed with Greek philosophy at that time. And he said, you had to determine. Now, we've got people today claiming to be apostles, claiming to be prophets. Are they? You've got to make a determination. How do you do that? How do you do that? Let's look at four principles very quickly. How do you determine truth from deception? How do you recognize a spirit of truth from a spirit of error? How do you separate false teachers from true ministers of God? How do you do that? What principles has God given us? Let's look at four very quickly. Let's go back to Isaiah <clears throat> chapter 8. Now, these are fundamental principles, but they're extremely important. And if we don't use them, we'll get in trouble. But if we use them, things are going to go much better. Let's look at 19 and 20 in Isaiah chapter 8. <clears throat> now, Isaiah is writing here. He says, when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter. Should not a people seek their God instead of these other things? Is the question that Isaiah asks. Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? You know, one of the ways that the ancients tried to uh, predict the future was to contact dead relatives and conjure them up so they would come in a vision and speak to them. That's what Isaiah is talking about. When they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? Now, here comes the principle, verse 20. Isaiah says, to the law and to the testimony, to the scriptures. If they do not speak according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. They're walking around in the dark. They don't understand. So we've got to listen carefully to what people say. Are they speaking according to the scriptures, all of the scriptures? Or do they take one little scripture here and negate everything else that's in the Bible? So we've got to look at the big picture. A very powerful principle to the law and to the testimony, to the scriptures, if they do not speak according to this word, is because there's no light in them. Now, they may claim to be a minister of Jesus Christ. They may claim to be a Christian. They may be very loving people, very caring people. But if they're not speaking according to the scriptures, the Bible says there's no light there. There's no light there. There's no truth there. Well, there may be some truth. You know, you could have a mixture of truth and error, but you're going to get messed up if you buy into that. Another principle, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4. This is how Jesus handled temptation, but it's also advice that he's giving. He answered Satan's temptation. He said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We have got to live by every word of God. Again, you can't take one scripture and build a whole doctrine around it. What does the Bible reveal in a whole series of scriptures? When you get the big picture, what are all those things saying? Well, God has led me to understand this, this verse over here. No, it doesn't work that way. 
We've got to look at the whole big picture, what God has revealed. We've got to live by every word of God, not just a verse or two. In uh, <clears throat> chapter, the same chapter, when Jesus was calling his disciples, verse 18, Now Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew called his brother, casting that into the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, Follow me. One of the ways that we keep from being deceived is follow the example of Jesus Christ. What did he do? What did he teach? What did he teach his disciples to do? What did he tell them to teach? He said, follow me. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, follow our examples. If we do that, we're not going to get in trouble. When we start winging it on our own, well, God has led me to understand something much more deeply. The apostles didn't understand that. But God's Spirit is working in me, and now I can see. And we've got to be careful. The human mind is capable. I've just been amazed over the years to see what the human mind is capable of reasoning itself into. If you've been there, I've been there too. <laughs> we can reason ourselves right off track. And it seems so right until you hit the wall. You realize, ooh, that was a wrong decision. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's one way of keeping everybody awake. <laughs> Principle number three, Acts chapter 17. Again, we talk about this a lot, but it is a biblical principle. It's there in the scriptures. Paul and Silas were in Berea preaching. In verse 11, it says that these people, that is the people in Berea, were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They heard things that Paul and Silas were preaching. They looked into the scriptures. Are these things so? And we have mentioned over the years, don't believe us. Prove it for yourself. Look it up. You know, I heard Mr. Armstrong on the radio and began reading and thinking. I didn't know where church was, so I think I spent the first month or so, once I learned about the church, in a library every Sabbath. Checking up on this, checking up on that. I wanted to see if it was true. Want to find out what you could verify. You know, what the truth was, as opposed to listening to somebody that says you have to take it on blind faith. I believe in Jesus. So therefore, you know, you, you've got to nail it down. You've got to nail these things down. That's what builds faith. Helps us to grow in the faith. So the Bereans searched the scriptures to verify. And again, you've got to search all of them. You can't just grab one scripture. Oh, this proves what... No, what about these scriptures over here? Well, I don't worry about that. You know, don't confuse me with the evidence. <laughs> this is what I want to believe. Principle number four. 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Now, we could come up with other scriptures, but uh, we also have a time limit that we've got to stay within. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul is uh, concluding the book, kind of summarizing a number of things. But in verse 21, he says, test all things. 
uh, in the Old King James, I think it says prove all things. The word means examine everything. Examine what you believe. Find out where the ideas came from. Do they come from Scripture or do they come from somewhere else? Test all things, prove all things, examine everything. And we just read in 1 John 4, 1 about testing the spirits. Think about it. what's happening. Does it agree with the scriptures? Would Jesus Christ do it? Would he believe it? Did he teach it? Prove all things and then hold fast to what is good. I know when I came into the church, I, I had a notebook. And I'd go to the library, I'd make notes. This is what I've proven, and this is what I've proven, and this is what I've proven. Because it gives you substance then, something that you can stand on. I can remember originally religious books I read growing up, and I'd read it, and it's kind of like, <laughs> so? <laughs> Where's the punchline? It was just never there in most cases. They were nice things. Well, God loves you, and this and that and the other thing. We're not sure about this, and we don't know what happens with there. And you know, I think one time I, I did a study. Uh, I was studying about prophecy. And I went to a library and went through about 10 years' worth of Christianity Today magazine, which is a mainstream Christian magazine. And I just wanted to see if they wrote any articles about prophecy. I found one article in 10 years. It was making statements like, well, since the Jews never fulfilled these prophecies, apparently they'll never be fulfilled. And I thought, because they felt that the, when the Bible talked about Israel, it was talking about the Jews. But with a key to an understanding of who the Israelite nations are, those prophecies suddenly come open. And you can begin to understand Bible prophecy. I think the reason the people who wrote Christianity Today articles didn't write about prophecy, they didn't understand it. They didn't have the keys that unlocked it. But that was very instructive to me. Ten years worth of issues and no articles on prophecy. And yet, what percentage of the Bible is prophecy? Almost 30%. So we can take out 30%, throw it away. No, you can't do that. Okay, let's talk about some core doctrines <clears throat> that the Bible teaches that are very different from what modern Christianity, not only modern Christianity, but Christianity down through the ages have taught. I'm going to list probably seven or eight um, <clears throat> fundamental doctrines or core doctrines that have been changed, that are very different from what's in the Bible. You know, a number of people have made comments to the extent, and you read this in the literature, that uh, when you compare what the Bible says about doctrine and what churches are doing today and have done for centuries, it doesn't fit together. And this is what these people in Africa, weren't highly educated people, but they were intelligent people. They were intelligent. They could recognize when they could read something in the Bible and their minister wasn't talking about it. And they realized two and two didn't make four. It just didn't work. And they understood that. What is the gospel? Fundamental doctrine. Ask somebody. Some of your friends. Maybe not if you want to keep your friends. <laughs> but what is the gospel? 
I asked a minister one time uh, back in the, we were living in Texas, happened to be a neighbor. I said, what, what's the gospel? He said, well, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I said, and what else? He just looked at me. He was a minister. You can turn to 1 Corinthians 15, first couple of verses, and you can come up with that definition. It's there. It's part of the gospel. Paul writes, chapter 15, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which you also received, and which you stand, by which you are saved. Salvation is part of the gospel. If it's not, we're all in trouble. If you hold fast to the word which I preach unto you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered you first and foremost, or fundamentally, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and he arose on the third day according to the scriptures. That is part of the gospel. But it doesn't stop there. Now, we've gone through this before, but I just want to review it very quickly. Let's notice a couple of other scriptures quickly that, that God... Uh, that. Uh, Paul mentions, you can just jot this down, Romans 1, verse 16, and Romans 10, verse 19, where Paul talks about preaching the gospel of Christ. What is that? The gospel of Christ. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 12, 2 Corinthians 2, 12, where Paul phrases it slightly differently. But some people will take this gospel of Christ, well, it's just all about Jesus. That's all the gospel is. But notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 2.12, Paul mentions, Further, when I came to Troas and preached Christ's gospel. Preached Christ's gospel. He didn't say the gospel of Christ. He said Christ's gospel. What was Christ's gospel? What did he preach about? You can go back to uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, where Jesus came into Galilee doing what? Preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, which is a big part of the gospel. But it's not mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15. Why is it not mentioned there? You go back to verse 12 in that chapter, Paul was addressing a question. Is there or is there not a resurrection? So what he says in answering that question, of course there is a resurrection. It's fundamental. It's part of the gospel. He didn't talk about the kingdom of God there because that was not the issue that he was addressing. You know, the kingdom of God is part of the gospel, a very powerful part of the gospel. I think if you go through the book of Matthew, it mentions that uh, Jesus and the disciples preached about the kingdom about 30 times. About 30 times. And yet I heard of an individual say one time, well, it's hardly mentioned. Only 30 times in Matthew. <laughs> you know, if we go to the book, it becomes very exciting. The gospel is about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's about grace. We don't deserve to be called. We don't deserve to be given the opportunity we've been given. But God is giving us that. It's about salvation. The word salvation means to be saved from destruction. And it appears to be spared the tribulation. 
Salvation is part of the gospel. Grace is part of the gospel. Paul talks about the gospel of peace. When Jesus Christ returns to this earth as the prince of peace and teaches people the way to peace, Psalm says, great peace of those who love your law. We're going to be teaching people the way to peace. There was a cartoon in the paper the other day talking about the last Palestinian or the last Hamas and the last uh, Israeli and showed them these two guys with shovels burying people on one side of the border, burying people on the other side of, of the border. And then they go at each other <laughs> with the shovels. <laughs> the last Israeli and the last Hamas. In other words, they're going to fight to the very death. Part of our job is going to bring peace to this earth and to teach mankind, human beings, there is a way to peace. This is part of the gospel that we're going to have the opportunity to participate in and share with all mankind. So the gospel picture is much bigger than we find in 1 Corinthians 15.1, but some groups, some individuals only want to use that definition. That's one reason why I didn't learn about the kingdom of God in the churches that I attended because they weren't focused on the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, even the book of Acts. When Peter went down to, uh, where was it, or Philip, <clears throat> went down to, where was it, Samaria? Let's look at that quick, Acts chapter 8. <clears throat> when Philip went down to Samaria, what was he preaching? Verse 12, Acts chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, who Jesus Christ was, why he died, what his message was. But Philip was preaching about the kingdom of God as well as Jesus Christ. It wasn't just one or the other. And some people have made mistakes focusing on one and ignoring the other. But they're both there. This is one of the core doctrines. The Bible preaches and teaches very clearly that the gospel is pretty big. It's exciting, and yet some people want to narrow it down and make it only be one thing. Let's look at a couple of other things and a couple of other doctrines, Sabbath versus Sunday. This is a core issue. It's a core issue. Why do people keep Sunday today? Well, to honor Jesus Christ, to honor his resurrection. But you know, there is no command in the scriptures to keep Sunday. You know it. Why do we keep Sunday? You've got to understand a little bit about church history. The Catholic Church changed it, and they claim so. And they say the Protestants follow us if they keep it. You know, if it's been a while since you've gone through the book, Which Day is a Christian Sabbath? There are incredible quotes here. There's incredible quotes here explaining what happened, why it happened. Now, if somebody said, well, I'm not interested in history. Well, that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate if we turn a blind eye to these things. You know, the reason that we keep Sabbath is because God created the Sabbath. He made it holy. You know, the commandment says, remember the Sabbath day. How do we know which day is the Sabbath? Jews haven't forgotten. They haven't forgotten in 2,000 years. Christ kept the Sabbath with them. And they're still keeping it today. 
And we don't want to take these things for granted, brethren, ever. We don't have time to go through all the scriptures, but uh, you can go through the Old Testament. You know, the Israelites went into captivity because they broke the Sabbaths of God. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10 mentions we're supposed to learn from the examples of the Israelites. You know, Jeroboam changed the feast from the seventh month to the eighth month. You're jumping ahead to the holy days versus the holidays. It says he caused Israel to sin. They lost their identity. They don't know who they are, and that's why our nations today don't know who we are. We've lost track of our roots. But the Sabbath versus Sunday, the holy days versus the holidays, another set of core doctrines. And Christmas was not the day that Jesus Christ was born on. It was interesting if you saw the paper this morning. It was an article in one of the sections about Sunday and what people should do on Sunday and what people should not do on Sunday. And it, it gives you a printout of the, um, oh, uh, I think it was Charlemagne's decree, not Charlemagne, but Constantine's decree. He says, on the venerable day of the sun, this was in the paper this morning, everybody should stop working. So who changed the Sabbath? Not the Bible, not the apostles, not Jesus Christ. An unconverted Roman emperor changed it. And there was a bishop in Rome and he wasn't even at the Council of Nicaea. He wasn't even involved when this big decision was made. You know, the book of Romans talks about people are going to be without excuse for not understanding the truth, or at least knowing the truth. The paper this morning published when the Sabbath was changed. It's not in the Bible. It didn't come from the Bible. But many people do it because, again, they think they're worshiping God and that God's going to be pleased. But let's notice just a couple of scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 4. What did God tell the Israelites? Now, some people say, well, this is only for Israel. But you can't read through chapter 4. And come away with that conclusion. God gave his laws to the Israelites so they would be a light and an example for the world. It wasn't just for them. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Let's notice in verse 6. It says, be careful to observe these things. Talking about the laws of God. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear these statutes. And say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Why are these people so blessed? Why do people want to come to America? Why do they want to live here? Because we've been blessed incredibly. Just go across the border into Mexico. Go into South America. Go into the Middle East. Go into Africa. Go to China. Why do they want to come here? Because we have been blessed according to the blessings that God promised to Abraham, the covenant that he made with Abraham. We've been blessed incredibly. But God wanted people to look at us and say, now tell us why you're blessed. <laughs> Show us how we can be blessed too. Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is uh, to us? But what did uh, 
God say to these people? In in verse 12. No, that's not correct. Verses 1 and 2 of Deuteronomy 4. It says, Now listen, O Israel, listen to the statutes and judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live, that things will go well for you. And you can go in and possess the land which the Lord God gives to your fathers, or your fathers, Lord God of your fathers is giving to you. Don't add to the word which I command you, and don't take anything from it. That's interesting. In the time of Jesus Christ, the Pharisees added all kinds of things to the scriptures, and the Sadducees deleted all kinds of things from the scriptures. And that same thing is happening today. There's some groups that want to add a whole lot more to the Bible, uh, to the teachings of the church, and there are other people that, well, we can erase that one. That doesn't apply. We don't like this one. And you wind up with, with a lot of empty spots. Don't add, don't take away, just do it. You know, when you're teaching your children and you tell them, you know, don't do this, don't do that, but they do it anyways, and then they smile and say, well, we thought it would be better. <laughs> you know, don't put paint on the car. Well, we like this color. <laughs> you don't write on the walls. Well, why not? I ran out of paper. <laughs> you know, we can't improvise like that, come up with new ideas. <clears throat> In uh, Deuteronomy 12, verse 29, now these were the instructions that God gave to his people to be a light and example to the world, and somehow we've forgotten these things today. Well, it's in the Old Testament, doesn't apply. But God doesn't change when it comes to these basic things. Deuteronomy 12, beginning in verse 29. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations uh, which you go in to dispossess, verse 30, take heed to yourself that you're not ensnared to follow after them after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? Don't do that. Don't ask how they worship their gods. You know, one of the reasons that the Catholics changed the Sabbath to Sunday is because pagans were used to worshiping their gods on the day of the sun. And the reasoning was, you can find this in the literature, well, if we change the day and if we give it a Christian name, then that will facilitate their conversion. They already celebrate December 25th, birth of the sun god, If we make this the Son of God, then that will facilitate their conversion and they can become Christians. What God is saying here, don't ask how they worship their gods. Don't do that. Jeremiah 10, verses 1 through 3, it says, don't learn the way of the heathen. They make idols, they do this, they do that. Don't do that. You're to be a light and example to the world. You don't adopt their practices. Let's just mention some of these others in passing. And I'll leave this for you to look up and explore. A fourth point would be the nature of God. Is God a trinity? Is God a trinity? Where did the idea come from? Look it up. 
know, the early church believed that God was divine. The Father was divine. They believed that Jesus Christ was divine. They did not believe the Holy Spirit was divine. That is, it was, they did not believe it was a person. Let me read you something from the, I think it's from the, uh, it's a New Catholic Encyclopedia. It says, the Old Testament clearly does not envision God's spirit as a person. God's spirit is simply God's power. The majority of New Testament texts reveal that God's spirit as something, not someone. This is the Catholic Encyclopedia. And yet many people today think that the Holy Spirit is a person and that God is a trinity. It's interesting some of the verses that they use, 1 John 5, verses 7 and 8, as a proof text was added to the Bible in the 15th century in the margins at first. What does that tell you? Why would you add something in the 15th century that talks about a trinity? Unless you're trying to put someone over on something. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says of Matthew 28, verse 19, which talks about being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Expositor's Bible Commentary said this text does not prove the Trinity. But sometimes it's used that way. You know, the point I'm really trying to make is that we've got to be careful what ideas we buy into and where these things came from. Number five, an immortal soul. Do you have an immortal soul? You know, we've been going over this, these things for years. Genesis 2, verses 7 and 19 talk about a person becomes a living soul. A living being. But the word is nephesh there, talking about when a person is created. And talks about animals are living nephishes, <laughs> living souls. So you've got something in common with your dog <laughs> or your cat. <laughs> you know, I'm being facetious. But this is what the Bible reveals. And then in Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 4 and 20, it says, The soul that sins will die. It's not going to burn in hell forever. You know, in Malachi, I think it's chapter 4, verse 1, it says the wicked will become ashes under the feet of the righteous. They're not going to burn up forever and ever and ever and ever and ever in boiling oil and all this stuff, you know, hanging upside down by your thumbs and, or whatever. <laughs> the Bible doesn't teach those things. And anybody that's got a reasonable mind realizes those things. The problem is they, they don't hear the truth being preached. Number six, is heaven the reward of the saved? Do we go to heaven when we die? You check the scriptures, Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 34. It says David is dead and buried. David is dead and buried. And he's not ascended into heaven. Acts chapter 13, verse 36. Well, if David didn't make it up there, I guess we're in bad way. But the Bible says, no, you don't do that. You don't go there. What about the rapture? Anybody read the books Left Behind? Have you been left behind? <laughs> read them. Where did the ideas come from? I got a book up here entitled uh, The Rapture Culture. It's written by a woman who grew up in a Pentecostal-type church and did some research. 
And it mentions that uh, the rapture idea came from, uh, basically arose in the mid-1800s. It was promoted by an American Protestant, promoted by a British itinerant uh, preacher who traveled widely in the United States and Canada. The rapture is defined, basically. It begins with something called the rapture. The rapture, in the rapture, Jesus secretly returns to earth and gathers to him all believers. As they're taken to heaven, uh, the world they leave behind is plunged into chaos. Cars and airplanes crash, buildings crumble. Uh, yeah, you've seen the pictures probably. In fact, if you read the account in the, in the uh, Left Behind series, it was not the pilot that was raptured. It was the people back in the, the, uh, in the plane. And the stewardess comes up and says, all the seats are empty and their clothes are still there. Where did they go? <laughs> and the pilot realizes, my wife is probably gone too because <laughs> she's a born-again Christian. Yeah, that's more palatable than saying the pilot was raptured and everybody else crashes. <laughs> but there are pictures that show that. But as this girl brings out, she says the, the very fertile fundamentalist mind has filled in all the details to make this thing. Uh, look at the scripture, 1 Thessalonians 4. This is one of the scriptures that, they, that is used for this. <clears throat> and we've got to break off here shortly. But if you read through the scriptures that talk about uh, what appears to be a rapture, there are problems with sequence. There are problems with, basically, problems with the scriptures in making all this work. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13, talks about Paul's uh, concerning those who are asleep. Uh, For if we believe the dead... <clears throat> that Jesus died and rose again from the dead, so he will bring with him those who uh, sleep in Jesus. And he mentions uh, about the coming of the day of the Lord. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. Then those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds uh, and meet the Lord in the air, and we shall always be with the Lord couple of quick questions to ask. When is the shout going to take place? When is the trumpet going to be blown? Matthew 24 says basically after the tribulation. So the trumpet's blown after the tribulation, not before. Uh, when are the dead going to arise? Check 1 Corinthians um, 15. Check uh, Revelation 20. After Christ returns or when he does return. The people aren't going to be spirited away up into heaven for a rapture. The Bible does talk about the church being protected, and people get that confused. But there are millions of people that read the Left Behind series. And when you look at the study this girl has used, uh, some buy into it. Some say, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> but I think the book sold over 50 million copies. This is the kind of stuff that is being distributed today. We talk about infant baptism or just baptism period. Should children be baptized? Should they really? There were a group of people back in the 15, 1600s called Anabaptists. They didn't believe in infant baptism. They didn't believe the scriptures supported that. I was on a website recently finding out where my ancestors came from. My mom's people came from Switzerland. 
And the story is they had to leave everything behind because apparently one of my ancestors was a Mennonite minister and the Mennonites were linked with the Anabaptists. They didn't believe in infant baptism. So they were persecuted for those things. And we don't believe in these things either because the scriptures don't support those things. Let's conclude by just talking briefly about the truth. And we've been talking about the truth versus deception. Why is that important? Why do we need to be concerned about that subject? 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, we're told that we will become like God. We're going to see him like he is, or as he is, and we're to become like him. Do a little study on truth. And you come up with scriptures that God is a God of truth, not of lies. God is a God of truth. He says, let the truth be your shield and your buckler. Psalm 91, verse 4. And Paul talks about putting on the whole armor of God with your waist girded with the truth. David mentions in the Psalms, your law is truth. Your word is truth. And Paul mentions numerous places that we've got to speak the truth in love. You know, not putting down people, not making fun of people, but speaking the truth in love. This is the truth. In Isaiah 30, I believe it is, verses 20 and 21, we have been called to become teachers in the coming kingdom of God to say, this is the way. This is the truth. This is the way that's going to lead to success and lead to happiness. Do you value that truth? As we said in the very beginning, Jesus told his disciples, you know, you can't come, you can't understand unless your mind has been opened to understand the truth. That we've, people seen, we've seen people walk away from the truth and buy into all kinds of ideas. You've got to know what the truth is. You've got to prove that truth. I have got to prove that truth. We've got to hang on to that truth. We've got to value that truth. Because as Paul warns in 2 Thessalonians 2, many people are going to be deceived because they didn't have a love for the truth. They didn't value it. Brethren, God has opened our minds and given us an incredible opportunity to understand his truth. He's preserved that truth in his word. And by his spirit, he's opened our minds to understand that truth. Brethren, let's be thankful. Be grateful for that truth. Let's study it. Let's learn it. Let's hang on to it. Let's never let go of it so we can share this truth with all mankind in the coming kingdom of God.